Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. I must say, that's our new opening, and I hope you like it. Last week uh, on Give the People What They Want, I said that we're going to surprise you with something. That's our surprise. It's our new opening. Um, you're listening to on the 13th of August. Uh, Give the people what they want. Coming to you from People's Dispatch and from Globetrotter. Today, you just get the pleasure of Zoe Alexandra and myself, Vijay Prashad. We're missing Prashant today. Um, You know, the world is uh, racked by corruption. The world is racked by all kinds of great dilemmas. Um, And yet, the government of India decides that it's far more interested in interrogating or questioning journalists than it is in dealing with uh, the primal issues of of hunger, the primal issues of the climate catastrophe, the primal issues of war and so on. So Prashant is a guest of the Indian government as far as we are concerned today. uh, And he is not here. Uh, Our anchor, co-anchor and friend is is sitting somewhere um, answering questions. So that's why today, friends, uh, on Give the People What They Want, coming to you from Globetrotter, and People's Dispatch, it's just Zoe and I. Uh, it's also Fidel Castro's birthday, so that's a good thing. Um, the old man would have been, I believe, 96 years old today. Um, the One of the key figures in the battle of ideas to help shape how people understand events in the world. Uh, Fidel Castro, of course, um, you know, uh, the key uh, leader of the Cuban Revolution, Uh, one of the key participants in constructing a socialist dynamic for the Cuban people, all 11 million of them. Cuba in the middle now of a great social crisis, Um, of course, deeply misses the presence of people like Fidel Castro. Um, There are other Fidel Castros in in development, but uh, that person is no longer with us. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Fidel. Um, Zoe, I think it's a good place to move from Cuba to Peru because Peru has a new government. Uh, President Pedro Castillo is uh, in the House of Pizarro as the government house is known in Lima in Peru. have had the pl- pleasure and pl- privilege of standing just outside the House of Pizarro um, uh, many years ago. What is happening, Zoe? Uh, with the Peruvian government, the new government of President Pedro Castillo? Well, you know, as as we have seen over the past couple of months, on June 6th, the elections were held in Peru. Very contentious, unnecessarily, although Pedro Castillo won. It took about two months um, for the electoral authorities in Peru to certify his victory. And you know, the whole time there was kind of the question, okay, it's likely that they're going to declare Pedro Castillo the, the victor in these elections, but what is going to happen in a country that has been dominated by neoliberal conservative rule, um, you know, that had a dictatorship into the 2000s? Um, what is going to happen in a country like this that's so kind of polarized between the elites and the masses? What is going to happen when this government takes office? A government that has been openly, um, you know, anti-neoliberal, 
has said that it wants to nationalize a lot of key industries of the country, has said that it will, you know, go after these elites accused of corruption that have been involved in all sorts of crimes of the elite class, which we know to have, you know, run Peru's uh, economy into the ground, created one of the most unequal countries in the region. And now we have seen what is going to happen when a government that is so, you know, against the interests of elites come to power. And this week, basically, the Attorney General of Peru opened up investigations into three members of the Free Peru Party, two of them who are part of the government. You know, we talked last uh, two weeks ago, I think, about how promising this cabinet of Pedro Castillo was, you know, for really, he, he picked a lot of people who were, you know, staunchly left in the leftist Peruvian tradition who are, you know, aligned with his values of anti-imperialism. You know, we have this foreign minister. Um, and so Guido uh, Bellido, who is the prime minister and who is, uh, you know, part of the Free Peru Party, a Marxist-Leninist, uh, Vladimir Serón, who's the leader of the Free Peru Party, um, have been, uh, are being investigated for, you know, allegedly supporting terrorism, and they're being investigated for links to the Shining Path in Peru. And so I think what's what's really interesting to highlight here is, you know, this is what happens when a, a party that is against the establishment comes to power. And, you know, as we've seen in other countries, in Ecuador, in Brazil, um, the, they will use, the elites will use these branches of government where they still have power, so the judiciary, to try to take these governments out of power. So, you know, they obviously, this isn't against the president, these are against government, um, you know, officials. There was a lot of backlash when Guido Bellido was appointed prime minister saying, you know, he's too leftist, how can this be the person who's appointed? And now they're also using this investigation to show that he's unfit for the role. Um, so, you know, it's unclear what kind of uh, evidence they might be pulling up in this investigation, what kind of, you know, what real, like, tangible evidence they'll try to use against them. We know what they're capable of. I mean, we know that, for example, Keiko Fujimori is actually accused of crimes of money laundering and corruption. She has yet to see the prison. I think it's just interesting to highlight these discrepancies in a country where there are so many elites that are accused of corruption, of stealing the money from the Peruvian people, um, and yet it's these new government ministers and with what they represent to the Peruvian people and to the Peruvian elites who are you know, facing the brunt of the judiciary. So Pedro Castillo, after a long period of time, is designated president of the country. He has the authority and right by the constitution to put forward a cabinet. He's put forward a left of center cabinet, as you said. In fact, wow, the foreign minister makes a declaration that Peru is going to pull out of the Lima group and therefore no longer illegally go after Venezuela and so on. A very interesting development coming from Peru, from St. Lucia, other countries saying we don't want any part of the Lima group, which, as I've said many times, Zoe should be better named the Ottawa group. And we're going to come back to Ottawa later in the show because Canada is very much in, in, in play, I think, in the news now, particularly for us. So the Peruvian government does all these things and then they try to undermine the government. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, government is, is how old? Just a few weeks old. And yet all these attempts to delegitimize the government take place immediately. Um, so much for democracy. Is that something to say or is that 
too much of an editorial statement. Uh, so much for democracy. Um, you know, uh, Zoe, the great writer, American U.S. writer Kurt Vonnegut had a phrase he used to use, so it goes, uh, so it goes. You know, uh, I suppose we should end many of our stories with so it goes. Um, here, here comes Pedro Castillo, legitimate president of Peru. They're trying to undermine him. So it goes. Well, so it goes in Afghanistan, where the Taliban, um, itself a coalition of diverse but hard right forces, uh, rushing to take the major cities of Afghanistan, one city after the other. Uh, stunningly, uh, the Afghan state or whatever has been built up with the assistance of the United States and the British government and others. The Afghan state unable to stem the uh, the rapid rush of the Taliban through provinces where it doesn't have a social base. For instance, in northern Afghanistan, Taliban making rapid advances. News reports came last night. I spoke to a, a, a colleague in Kandahar who said to me that Kandahar, I think, is now under Taliban rule. Turns out that was a premature statement. On the other hand, Kandahar and the southern cities are in a social base where the Taliban actually has quite uh, great support. The real place to keep an eye on is Mazar-e-Sharif, the city in the north, um, just south of the Central Asian republics, just south of the Amu Darya, the major river of the north. Uh, Mazar-e-Sharif is likely to fall to the Taliban very soon. Uh, they are making, again, very quick advances such quick advances that the British government has decided to send 600 troops to essentially evacuate British personnel from Kabul. Um, this is a great surrender of the West in the face of the Taliban's onslaught. And there's no other way to look at it. The United States, of course, tried aerial bombardment of cities in the north to prevent Taliban movements, but they are not being successful. The Taliban has built up the capacity to overrun the country. There should be some concern about this because, you know, yes, the, the West is, is being historically defeated. This is another Vietnam. But this time it's not the National Liberation Front. It's not the uh, Viet Minh. It's not the communists that are coming to power. Uh, it's the hard right. And the Taliban, they are not good fellows. Uh, I, I feel uncomfortable ending this segment with so it goes, Zoe, because um, so it should not go. Um, now, the question, what are the alternatives? What might happen? Um, I've been speaking with Pakistani leaders from the northwest frontier provinces and at People's Dispatch and Globetrotter next week, most likely I'll run an interview with Mohsin Dawar of the PTM, a party of the, of the Waziristan area. Uh, Mohsin Dawar making the point that the Pakistani government must stop supporting the Taliban. Um, the grandson of the great leader of the Khudai Khitmatgars, uh, Bad Shah Khan, his, his grandson, now a leader of a major political party, the Awami Party in, in the no northwest frontier region of Pakistan, also saying he wants the Pakistani government to stop meddling. Well, both, um, you know, uh, both the son of, uh, grandson of, of uh, Khudai Khitmatgar leader, Bad Shah Khan, Wali Khan's uh, descendant, both he and uh, Mohsin Dawar making the point that a Taliban government in Kabul is going to exacerbate tensions in Waziristan. It's going to create more chaos. These are men of the left, uh, Mohsin Dawar and so on. These are people who have a socialistic um, orientation. They don't want a hard right government in, in Afghanistan. 
um, we're in a very, very perilous state looking at the, you know, the great Hindu Kush knot, um, that region of Afghanistan, Central Asian states and so on. The descent into chaos that took place about 30 years ago continues. Um, there is a straight line between U.S. funding of the Mujahideen uh, in the 1990s and what we see today. You know, ghastly um, elements backed, led by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, Burhuddin Rabbani and so on. Those elements continue in today. Um, it's not enough to look at this from the perspective of the U.S. must withdraw, the U.S. must not withdraw and so on. The U.S. policy has destroyed a lot of the potential in Afghanistan. And, and as reporters, as people who follow these things, we're constantly on the lookout for humane politics in Afghanistan. Those social forces exist. I interviewed Hila Najibullah, the daughter of the last left-leaning uh, president of Afghanistan, Mohammad Najibullah. And she told me that there are lots of forces that exist, but they sit underground. They're too scared to put their heads above ground. Um, you know, after the United States tried to fashion a government in 2001, the same thing was said by these social forces. The more left-leaning, um, you know, humane people said they were too scared because the left, the, the U.S. government colluded with the Mujahideen's descendants in the Loya Jirga and so on. Um, not allowing women to have a real role. Uh, it was all lip service. We were in a difficult state for Afghanistan. We'll be keeping an eye on this from um, Globetrotter, uh, from uh, People's Dispatch, because this is an important story, the story of Afghanistan. Now, uh, talking about the West and its intervention in other countries, um, you know, for a long time, there's been great consideration, great worry about Saudi Arabia's war prosecuted alongside United Arab Emirates in Yemen, uh, Saudi wars in other countries as well. There's been a political attempt to stop arms sales from Canada, to stop arms sales from the United States, to stop arms sales from the United Kingdom. A lot of political pressure in these countries, BAE systems not to sell uh, sophisticated weaponry to the Saudis being used against uh, largely defenseless Yemeni people and so on. Justin Trudeau fashions himself, of course, as a great champion of liberalism. Canada once more in the spotlight, wanting to arm the Saudis. What's going on there, um, Zoe, with Justin Trudeau, Saudi Arabia and weapons? Well, yes, our darling Justin Trudeau has once again revealed himself um, to really be nothing more than this kind of liberal facade, because really what he's been doing in Canada you know, in their foreign policy, but also domestically, has been really continuing the conservative agenda. Um, I think the case of the weapons sales to Saudi Arabia is really telling just about this, you know, real facade of what Canada's role is in the international stage. You mentioned, you know, the Lima Group should really be called the Ottawa Cartel. Um, you know, Canada is the second largest arms exporter to Saudi Arabia after the United States. Um, and these arms have been used in Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen. Um, and just to remind people, uh, the war against Yemen is a humanitarian catastrophe that has been recognized, you know, by all international bodies, the UN. I mean, the UN has stated that 80, more than 80% of the country's population is dependent on international humanitarian aid. However, uh, Canada says that, uh, you know, they halted their, um, their, ex, their weapon sales to Saudi Arabia at one point after the assassination of journalist Jamal 
Khashoggi in 2018, um, and then they resumed them in 2020, um, saying that there was no substantial risk to human rights violations taking place. So I think this is interesting, just given the sense that um, we know that it's a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. We know the numbers. We know that there are you know, millions of people who have been displaced, who are starving, who are suffering from malnutrition. Um, you know, airstrikes have been carried out in civilian locations. It's, I mean, really the, the reports from Yemen are truly harrowing. Um, and Canada, which, you know, does champion itself as a defender of human rights, of, you know, the more calm, cool-headed law and order internationally, um, you know, as opposed to its counterpart in a lot of ways, the U.S., um, is really not uh, going by these, you know, their, their alleged morals. So I think uh, it's quite tragic um, just because the offensive against Yemen continues. Um, Yemenis continue to demand that countries like Canada, countries like the United States, you know, do nothing more than stop weapons sales, stop the blockade of Yemen. You know, not only is it being, you know, bombed, but it all, there's also a blockade in their ports. Um, and even it, within Canada, rights groups have been demanding that the government stop these weapons sales. They've been, you know, mobilizing and telling the government to, you know, respect its these values, and it has done. It has not done that. Um, so just another blunder on the record of Justin Trudeau. You know, as we've reported in prior episodes, it's also dealing domestically with this. You know, quite horrific issue of the um, mass graves of indigenous people, of indigenous children in residential schools. So when we're speaking about Canada, we can't. We must remember that this country is, you know, also involved in imperialist crimes, both at home and abroad. Um, you're listening to Give the People What They Want. Uh, if you joined us from the beginning of the show, you would have seen that we now have a fantastic opening montage of our voices and so on uh, with a drawing of our logo and, and, and it looks lovely and happy that we have it. Um, of course, it has the voice of Zoe, of me, Vijay, uh, Zoe from People's Dispatch, me, Vijay from Globetrotter and the voice of Prashant from People's Dispatch. Prashant is not here today because, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, Prashant is a guest of the Indian government as, as we are on air, um, a key co-anchor of this show. Uh, well, here we go. Uh, we have a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Before I get to that report, friends, terrible forest fires across the Mediterranean. Um, you would have seen the forest fire reports from Turkey, uh, horrendous fires, uh, not known to people in that region. Of course, Mr. Erdogan, who comes himself from a part of Turkey where it is famous for the production of tea. Mr. Erdogan decides to go to the people distressed by the forest fires and gives them packets of tea, sachels of tea, reminding me of when Mr. Trump, uh, then President of the United States, went to Puerto Rico which struggled with the aftermath of a hurricane and took, um, you know, rolls of paper towels and threw it at people um, as if to say, here, look what we're giving you, paper towels for a hurricane. Mr. Erdogan, here is tea bags for the hurricane, for, for the forest fires. Similar kind of attitude, callous attitude to people. 
Um, well, in, uh, in the Kabil region of Algeria, uh, we get reports now that about 69 people uh, have been have been killed in the in the forest fires which are devastating algeria 25 of them are army men who went up there to try to fight the fire um, it's staggering what is going on uh, in in the mediterranean region you know the whole basin is being taken hold of by these forest fires that stretch from turkey at one end and greece uh, across the balkans into Italy, Spain, Algeria, uh, you know, uh, it's a very devastating thing. Well, wh why are these things occurring? The new intergovernmental uh, panel on climate change, the IPCC, which last reported in 2013, has released a devastating report. Uh, in this report, the 234 internationally acclaimed scientists, listen, friends, the IPCC is a body of 234 internationally acclaimed scientists who come to the evidence with a clear-headed sense of where we are. They've looked at the data. They looked at models in 2013. They already warned that the planet was in great peril. In 2021, in their new report, they say that time is running short because we're going to live on a with a hell on earth um, the phrase from the climate scientists and others different kinds of scientists is that we will live in a hell on earth this is a very strong statement um, that comes you know uh, from the climate scientists hell on earth they say that uh, we will peak at 1.6 degrees celsius above pre-industrialization levels uh, shortly after 2050 this is catastrophic already that by 2050 i want to remind you we are in 2021 that means that in nine years we'll be in 2030 in uh, in 29 years we will be at 2050 in 29 years the life of a young adult in 29 years the pl planet will have warming of one point above 1.5 degrees centigrade this is catastrophic but they also say under the current emissions very high emissions scenario warming would reach three degrees celsius by 2060 three degrees celsius in 39 years and then by 2011 20 2100 by the year 2100, it could get to 5.7 degrees centigrade at this rate. Friends, uh, consider this. We are worried about the 1.5 degree threshold. They are now telling us in the year 2100, uh, it could get to 5.7 degrees Celsius. 5.7 degrees Celsius is the annihilation of human beings. It is the extinction of most of life on the planet Earth. Uh, I want you to keep that uh, in the front cortex of your head. Uh, 5.7 degrees Celsius, that is extinction. Um, uh, forecast by these scientists looking at available data by the year 2100. Now, you might say they are being alarmist uh, and so on. Uh, they are being alarmist on the other hand. Uh, what are we looking at? What is the evidence of, uh, from which they derive this? The evidence is in, in, in Algeria. The evidence is in Turkey. The evidence is in... Um, you know, heat in models that show uh, extreme heat waves, catastrophic floods, rapid melting of Arctic ice and the permafrost, heat waves experienced now, record heat waves around the world, catastrophic flooding. We saw this in Germany. We saw this um, in China. 
catastrophic flooding, rapid melting of the Arctic ice and permafrost. They are now telling us, and I have not been there to see it with my own eyes, but they are telling us that you can circumvent the Arctic waters without an ice cutter ship. The prow of an ordinary large ship can crack through the ice. The ice is weakened, deeply weakened, existentially weakened. The ice is facing an existential threat. It can become extinct. This is a very serious issue for the planet. Uh, you know, very, very serious. I hope that governments around the world take this seriously. Meanwhile, the administration of Mr. Joe Biden has informed the organization of petroleum exporting countries to increase oil production. Um, the IPCC report comes out. The first um, statement from the Biden administration to the oil exporting countries is increase oil production because we want to keep prices of oil down so that the pandemic um, you know, uh, 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 you know, the recession that's taking place will be circumvented. Bear this in mind, friends. We've got uh, this report from 234 climate scientists endorsed by the UN protocols of various kinds or the other. We have this report which says, be careful, we can be extinct by 2100. And then the United States government says, pump more oil. Uh, tell me what you think about that. Where at give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. We love to hear from you. We love to hear what you think about the stories we do. Uh, time to move now to Guatemala. Now, uh, in Havana, Cuba, protests had taken place on July 11th. The United States government comes out on July 12th and says, overthrow the government. Overthrow the government, says the United States. Meanwhile, since July 29th, thousands of people in Guatemala have been protesting, demanding the resignation of the president. Zoe, what's happening in Guatemala and why hasn't the Biden administration called for a regime change in Guatemala? Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the thing, one of just to circle back to a couple of months ago when Kamala Harris, you know, vice president of the United States was in Guatemala, what she did tell Guatemalans was don't leave your country. Don't try to make the journey. Don't migrate. Just want to start with that. Um, and in, right now in Guatemala, people have been on the streets, you know, because they want to make their country better. They don't want to leave their country. However, the conditions are truly, you know, challenging. Right now, COVID cases have multiplied by at least four times in the past couple of weeks. You know, as we know, in many Global South countries, the official numbers on COVID cases nowhere not even close match the actual reality. I mean, just in terms of testing infrastructure, a lot of times people have to pay for a test. They're not available at most locations, very, very limited. But from the information and the data we do have, COVID cases have been up, you know, a momentous amount. Um, people are angry because of the COVID situation. They're also angry because corruption, which has been, you know, a constant, in Guatemalan politics for the past, you know, couple of decades, um, once again is at the fore. Uh, the uh, Juan Francisco Sandoval, who was part of the special prosecution against impunity investigating corruption, was dismissed by the government. He's now facing threats to his life. Um, and this is a commission, you know, to investigate corruption among government officials. As we know, eight months ago, people were out on the streets of Guatemala also very angry about corruption. You know, several members of the government, including the president himself, 
members of his cabinet have been implicated. You know, they've been accused of siphoning COVID funds. They've been accused of cutting health and education in sectors of the of the public budget where it's really needed um, and using these funds for other purposes. And so people have been mobilized, you know, for the past couple of years in kind of a constant process of demanding that the government be held accountable. They're demanding that in Guatemala the people can elect, you know, a government that is not going to take the money away from the people and towards their own pockets. And once again, we're seeing, you know, great unity on the streets of Guatemala, peasant organizations, indigenous organizations, youth, you know, trade unions who are all in the streets demanding the resignation of President Alejandro Giametti, um, who once again, you know, is at kind of the the focus of representing, you know, by dismissing this person who was investigating government corruption and not doing anything to guarantee that there is kind of a transparent uh, process. You know, it's just once again showing to the people that what they they don't really care about getting to the bottom of this. They don't really care about you know actually assuring that the people's needs are met, that the public budget is being used to guarantee the people their rights. And, when, and you know, this is a story in a lot of countries in Latin America. This isn't something the U.S. really cares about. The U.S. cares that these governments, you know, are able to keep their people under control, that they don't migrate. What they don't understand is that people are migrating, or they do understand it, but they don't choose to, you know, acknowledge this, is that people are migrating because in their countries, when the governments are corrupt, when they are not responding to the needs of the people, they don't, ha they can't survive. Um, so the people have been on the streets demanding the resignation of uh, Alejandro Giametti, but also the dismantling of this corrupt class of politicians in Guatemala that has ruled the country for the past couple of decades. And I think they're going to continue with the road blockades and mobilizations in the coming days. We have Giametti in Guatemala. We have Ivan Duque in Colombia. We have mass demonstrations in these countries. No word about regime change there. Meanwhile, today's Fidel Castro's birthday. They want to overthrow the Cuban revolution. Interesting times we live in, friends. Uh, you've been listening to Give the People What They Want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. Zoe here today, Prashant absent for reasons I've already talked about. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Um, it's tempting to end the show with those immortal words from Kurt Vonnegut. Well, so it goes. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup.